welcome to This Speech Life, an audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring all things related to school-based SLP practice. I'm your host, Caitlin Lopez, MSCCC SLP, a school-based SLP with over 10 years of experience. In each episode, we will cover three need-to-know aspects of the topic, two resources related to the topic, and one actionable strategy for tomorrow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast episode. We are so excited to have Crystal Sanford with us today. Before we begin, just a few housekeeping items. My name is Caitlin Lopez. I'm a school-based SLP, and I am your podcast host for This Speech Life. This course will be an hour long, and you can make sure to complete all modules that you'll find in the course portal on speechtherapypd.com to get your CEUs for today. And if you have any questions for Ms. Sanford, please pop them into the chat or the Q&A box, and I can make sure to get them to her at the appropriate time. All right. I am so excited to introduce you to Crystal Sanford. If you haven't already taken her course on speech therapy PD, or if you don't know her, she is a powerhouse. And I'm so excited that she has agreed to be on our podcast. Crystal Sanford, Masters of Education, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P, is the owner, director, and lead advocate at the Sanford Autism Advocacy Group, LLC a comprehensive consulting practice that specializes in empowering autism families. Since 2016, soon after her first child was identified as autistic, Crystal has been training fellow autism parents and caregivers on how to effectively advocate for the education their child deserves. Crystal has also written various articles, some published through National Autism Foundations. She's also a creator of the Crystal Clear IEP course and the IEP Consultant Biz Builder Program digital training platforms for parents, caregivers, and professionals to expand their special education knowledge. Crystal also continues to practice as a speech-language pathologist with over 20 years of experience in public schools and the private sector. Currently, she and her team provide comprehensive communication evaluations, social skills groups, and more for students impacted by autism through her second company, the Sanford Speech Therapy and Learning Center Incorporated. When not supporting families and the community, Crystal enjoys spending non-technology time with her husband and two amazing daughters in mostly sunny San Diego, California. Not quite so much lately. (laughs) Crystal also enjoys walking for life, succulent gardening, and curling up with a good book. Crystal, thank you so much for being here with us today. So let's just jump into it. What are three things that we need to know about advocating for our students? First of all, thank you so much for having me. It's always an honor to be able to speak to and connect with my colleagues. So this is just really a pleasure. Thank you. And so three things that we need to know as we are advocating for our students and in our conversation, primarily we're talking about neurodiverse students and kids on the autism spectrum. One is the power of strength and a focus on strength. I think I've shared this in in many settings that it is unfortunate that we operate in such a deficit model when it comes to education and special education specifically, and that we almost are forced to look at what kiddos can't do and things that are problems and wrong, and then trying to fix that. But there is such power in starting from the place of strength and having more of a strength-focused IEP and lens as you're looking at kiddos. So so looking at strengths and really considering strengths, interests, preferences, and, and the power of that is one thing to really consider. Another thing is considering the power of the community. And I mean community by the community of the child's family, whatever their ecosystem looks like. If it's nannies or caregivers or grandparents, whomever that might be, after school care workers, people who know the child well, there is a big focus on empowering caregivers when we are working in early intervention. But I had a a professor share this when I was working on my advocacy work. He said that, you know, we lose that after age three. And then what happens? All of a sudden, we're just focused on the child and we don't spend a lot of time or energy on 
that child's system, their ecosystem, their community. And so there is benefit to understanding the child from the perspective of the parent, the caregiver, the person that teaches them swimming, whomever that may have some meaningful interaction with the child. So as much as possible, being able to tap into the child's ecosystem is, is super important. And then also really considering what you can do to see the child as a whole child in the school environment. And I know that's not always easy. We're busy. We're over caseload and we're trying to write IEPs and assess and everything. But considering the child in a variety of environments is super important. So beyond what you see and what you get in that glimpse, that moment of time and that assessment, what does life look like for that child in the classroom, on the playground, at the library, before school? Why is it that mom is always dragging them, kicking and screaming the school? I mean, like things like that to consider and the context of where the child is successful, where the child may be struggling. Maybe there's some great things happening at the before school program. Maybe we need to tap into that and see what's going on so that we can maybe use some of that as part of our treatment. So thinking about the child as the whole child in their school day, as well as in their family life and their community, and then thinking about their strengths and interests and preferences. Awesome. Thank you. I really love that idea of the power of strength and thinking about that. I know that it has really greatly shifted my practice over the last two years, especially thinking about, okay, how do I assess a child without these standardized scores? And how do I really look at what they're doing and trying to figure out, okay, instead of giving them this skill they don't have, how do I level up the skills they do have? And it's a hard thing. I mean, some of us have been doing this for lots and lots of years, and it's not what we were taught in grad school. Totally, totally get that. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate that. That was your first point. Strength focused. What is it that the child wants? What is it that the family wants, which brings in your, your power of community, which I think is so, so valuable. I took a year off from the school setting because I wanted to work part-time and it opened up my world so much because I was working for a clinic and the families came in to every single session. I mean, granted, you know, I'm, it's different than the school setting for lots and lots of reasons, but I think the thing that I really took away from my time in the clinic was, okay, now I've really learned how to collaborate with families. And so it's more challenging in the school system to get a hold of those families. But I, and the other thing that I love too, is the clinic. Every time there was a non-native English speaker, they had an interpreter for us in whatever language, which was huge, which is a little harder in the school setting. We don't always have access to multiple language interpreters, but I love the point that you made about there's this huge focus with early intervention, and then we lose that. And how do we get that back? And your other point, your last point about whole child, what does life look like for that whole child? Do you have any tips or any suggestions for us working in the school setting? Because you mentioned it, we're busy. We've got these high caseloads and you've been there. You've been in the school setting. That's what I really love about your course and how you approach things is those of us that are in the school setting, we hear advocate and we freak out. Oh, for sure. (laughs) And and I honestly don't even use the term. And I've taught my staff that we are parent representatives. And that's Mm. part. We really are, I mean, coaches, collaborators, because some people have PTSD. When they hear advocate, it's like, oh my God, deer in headlights. I have had teams tell me after the fact, this was a team specifically, somebody on the team said, I wish you would come to all of our meetings. And that meant a lot. That meant we were doing something right. We were adding some value. People left feeling good and with solutions. And so that's really what we're all about. I love that. And I love the way that you're approaching these challenges as, okay, we're sitting around the table. We all want what's best for the child. And we all have systems at play that prevent us, but you guys really are so great at coming up with solutions and helping everyone around the table. But what are your suggestions for those of us that are like, I've got a caseload of 70. I know that I need to be doing these things, but do you have any suggestions for 
quick things that we could do to maybe connect with families or think about whole child a little bit better? One thing is we've been talking about lately with my staff is over communication. And we get parents who come to us a lot who, who say, nobody's listening to me. I'm trying to communicate. All I want to do is know what's happening to my kid. And you have to think about these are parents who are dropping their kids off at this school environment, trusting that somebody's going to take care of their kid. Things are going to go well. And they have no insight into what is happening in that school environment, sometimes except for the annual IEP meeting. And so something as simple as weekly is probably not as reasonable for some, but even if it's a monthly check-in, here's the things you plan to address with the kiddo or a check-in. Hey, how are you? What's going on? Are there any trips? It's maybe do it quarterly. Maybe it's around like it's spring break. Do you guys have any plans? Let me know. Cause then you can talk about those things during your treatment sessions. So as much as you can, finding little ways to over communicate to families, something beyond that annual report at the IEP that could really, really speak volumes, calm parents' nerves and make them stop emailing you 25 times. <laughs> I, you know, that's such a great point. When I was working for the clinic, there was a family that I was working with where they said, you know, the speech therapist hasn't told me, I don't even know if she's seeing him. Yeah. And because it's so different, they were working with us and this child received multiple therapies, saw the therapist every single week and knew exactly what was happening. And the therapist, I knew the SLP that was seeing this little boy in school. And I said, she's great. I have utmost respect for her. She's actually, when I worked with her, she was one of the voices that I trusted and listened to. And she said, well, she hasn't told me that she's pulling him. And so I took a minute to explain the difference between my work with the child and the school district's work with the child. But I think, again, it, it goes to that point that you made, you know, early intervention and even preschool. Preschool teachers are great about updating families and teachers are great now. There's so many great apps like Class Dojo, And so I can see how it's harder for us. I had a parent actually today reach out to me. You haven't updated the Google Classroom. And I said, you're right. I haven't updated the Google Classroom. When I first started it, I had 45 kids on my caseload. Now I have 70. It's just wow. not going to happen. Yeah. And then she said, I really miss hearing what you guys were working on. Do you mind writing it in his notebook that comes home to me every week? That's fine. That'll take me two seconds. There you go. Yeah. But I think that that's a really good point of over-communication, looking for those little bits beyond just the phone call before the IEP. Right. Right. For and sure. taking advantage of some of those apps like Class Dojo, Google Classroom, as best as we can. I mean, I just shared how I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not easy. Like you said, I mean, life happens from the beginning of the school year. And we all start out with all these grand expectations of what we're going to do and how we're going to collaborate, all these lessons we're going to do. And maybe we start off the year well, and then you know what happens. IEPs come up and assessments, all the things. And so maybe communicating that to parents or maybe setting up the expectation that expect to hear from me three times this year or four times this year. And if you need or would like to hear more, feel free to reach out. And you may get a few parents that might do that. But just again, just that attempt at making some communication beyond that, yeah, IEP before the night IEP phone call. And I love the idea of Dojo, you know, all these different apps and things that are out there. Parents are, you know, using technology. So something as, as simple as that could be helpful. Or if the kid already has a communication note, but that goes back and forth every day, that could be helpful as well. So, yeah. Awesome. Thank you. All right. What are two resources that you have for us when it comes to advocacy for our students? Wow. So we've talked about so much with our kiddos and I'm just thinking about it in my practice. And We've been looking a lot at the strength-based IEP. It's just about strength-based approaches to educating all learners with disabilities has been a really good book that we are diving into as a company. And just looking at, again, the idea of strengths, which really is the 
spirit of the law of, of IDEA, federal law IDEA, was the idea of including students and looking at what they can do and looking at opportunities and, and creatively finding opportunities that match who they are, strengths and, and interests and preferences. So that's a great resource. I always encourage families, practitioners as well to look at what the parents' rights are. This is just something to think about. Not many people take time to explain that to parents. And if you can be a voice to explain and and to give insight into parent rights. So we all have these procedural safeguards, right, in our school districts. Take a minute and read that. You'd be maybe surprised and maybe able to help answer some parent questions that can help to address their concerns at the lowest level possible. Because that is our goal. That really is the goal of, of mediation and and really best practices is as much as possible, let's just address it at the lowest level. And so looking, understanding about those parent rights and being able to speak to that with families can be really helpful as well. Awesome. I think that's a really, really great idea. There was a school district that I worked for previously where they had a 10 point bullet points of what the procedural safeguards were. And there were some on there that I like knew, but I never really thought to explain to the parent before. And especially, again, working in the private clinic really opened up my eyes to how much an IEP is a foreign language. Yes. Especially for these three-year-olds that their regional center is telling them, okay, now you need to go be assessed by the school district. Mm -hmm. And some regional centers are great about walking their clients through and some are not as great. That really opened my eyes to parents not understanding the whole IEP process and doing it for 10 years, the language, I forget that it's foreign. Yeah, it's natural to us, right? But you're exactly right that for families who, I mean, even native English speaking families, much less families who have another language who are bilingual or trilingual or whatever. But yeah, I've had parents say, I wish there was IEP for dummies or IEP Bible or something that explains it because it is, it's another language. And I've, I've had other families say, this one mom, I'll never forget. She said, you know, I can build a house out of sticks, right? She was an architect. She was amazing. She said, but I feel so incompetent when it comes to my child's education. I don't have a clue and I don't like that feeling. Yeah. I mean, you've got that example of that parent. And I remember a few years ago, a parent that I couldn't get to show up for an IEP for the life of me, she would respond to my phone calls, would give me parent report for IEPs, for assessments, like her and I had a great relationship, but I just couldn't understand why she wouldn't show up to the IEP. And she was in the office signing something or picking up something. And I happened to be in the office and I said, Hey, do you have time? Can we do the IEP right now? And she said, can it just be you and me? I always feel like I'm back in the principal's office like I was all the time as a little kid. Wow. Wow. And that really shifted things for me as, okay, how can we make this a more comfortable situation? And like you said, parents feel incompetent or we just throw information at them. And I don't think it comes from a place of nefariousness or maleficence. It's just... There's been days where I've had to sit in six IEPs. Yeah, yeah, I get it. And I always have to remind myself, this is one of my 70 Mm -hmm. and it's one of their one or two or four. Mm -hmm. And so it's, okay, this is their one priority right now for this hour to two hour block. This needs to be my priority for this one to two hour block. Sure. And I think educating our teams, I think speech therapists tend to be, well, I don't know, maybe not, (laughs) but I tend to think that we're pretty empathetic individuals. Yes. And I think trying to educate maybe our administrators that are sitting in these meetings who I've sat with some that are very business focused Mm -hmm. and helping them realize, you know, this is a family who's deer in headlights. Maybe they just recently got a diagnosis that they don't know what this means. Right. Yeah, for sure. I would agree. I mean, I'm going to be biased and say the same thing. I feel like SLPs often get it a little bit more and are a little bit more empathetic than some of the other people on the team. And not to say that we're the best thing since sliced bread, although SLPs are amazing, but I feel like in some ways we do get it right. And so some of that is, it is informing and 
having collaborative conversations, maybe uncomfortable conversations with people on the team and helping them to prepare well so that we are presenting information in a way that parents understand. It is parent friendly. It doesn't mean the IEP has to take three hours. It could still be a time where it is efficient. One thing that is important, I was just saying this to my own child's IEP team, is please send the information ahead of time. That allows parents to do what the law says, which is meaningfully participate in their child's education. And I really find it challenging when teams have a triennial, let's say, or initial evaluation of a child, and they present the information that day to the parent. We're talking APE and AT and speech and OT and psychologists, and then expect the parent to sign the IEP document. Like, we wouldn't do that in any other context. When you buy a house or a car, I mean, you often have time to review these documents, yet in this situation, just tons of information is presented, and we expect parents to absorb it and to make a decision about it. I think it's very unreasonable. I agree with you. I know the family in particular that I was talking about that reached out to me and said, he's not being seen for speech. I haven't heard. And I said, he's being seen for speech. It's just not common practice, you know, and, and she brought the IEP to me and said, well, what do you think of this? And I had some suggestions of things that I thought, but I had told her ahead of time, don't worry, you don't have to sign first thing. Hmm. You know, if you want to look at it and understand it because it was brand new to her, she'd only been seen in the clinic, maybe two, three months. So autism was still a big, scary thing. And she said, if you hadn't told me that, and you hadn't told me all these things about IEPs, I wouldn't have known. I would have just gone in and signed and I wouldn't have known to ask for this or ask for that. And she wasn't asking for unreasonable things either, Mm -hmm. because I know what it's like (laughs) to be in the school setting and what's appropriate in the school setting. And the difference between a school and a clinic setting. But I think that that's a really great point. And I think it's a good point for us to also educate other members of our team is these parents are not being difficult. If they don't sign that day, it's okay for them to think about it. And I think that's a great idea too, of educating our team on sending information home ahead of time. Yeah. It'd be very helpful. Sometimes maybe if there's two partners, maybe the one significant other can't even come to the meeting. So then they can maybe have some discussion and prepare questions about it ahead of time. I do this as a living and it was a lot to absorb. My child just had her triennial evaluation. And so there was six different reports. I mean, that was a lot even for me. And so, yeah, I think it's just giving parents some space to, to get some questions just together, wrapping their brain around some of this can be helpful. Something else that we talk about too, is that you never know where families are with who their child is. Mm. And there is in psychology, the idea of the grief cycle. And we talk about this in our team that when it comes to a child with a diagnosis, and there's some research in this area, there is almost a need to grieve the child that you thought you were going to have if you birth the child or adopt or whatever, so that you can better appreciate the child that you do have and who they are. And some parents haven't done that. So they are IEPing in grief. And maybe that's why they are asking for unreasonable things and five days a week speech, all these things. Why? Because they're still trying to fix their child because they haven't grieved the idea that that child is not who they thought they were. They are a different child with different abilities and that's okay. They're not at the point that it's okay. So taking that into perspective, I think can help us maybe better understand our families and maybe better help them along that process. Did you know that SpeechTherapyPD.com has weekly live and interactive webinars? We are the fastest growing CE provider. Subscribe today to get access to over 750 different courses in audio or video format. That is such a good point. Such a good point as I'm thinking back to past teams I've been a part of and even myself early on thinking, oh man, why are they asking for all this? Don't they realize that this is not where they're, you know, and instead of sitting in that place of judgment and the you versus me and okay, 
How do we all help each other along to see things? I think that's such a great point. And especially the point that you made of they have to go through that process to see who their kid is today and to appreciate who their child is today. I think that's something we often forget about. That's the end goal of for them to love their child, who they are. And your experience, your own child getting a diagnosis, going through the process, you know, how was that for you? Because you were a speech therapist already. I was, yeah. I had been in over 10 years at the time. And I had always loved kiddos. You know, you love all your kiddos. You appreciate them all. But I just always had a special place in my heart for kiddos on the spectrum. They just were fascinating to work with. And I just really appreciated them. And then, surprise, I started thinking, hmm, A plus B is C here. Maybe she is on, my daughter's on the spectrum. She was about 18 months and she was late walking late gross motor and fine motor, but she had phenomenal language skill, vocabulary, and hyperlexic and all these things. And I'm like, mm-hmm, I think this could be autism. So it took a while for her to actually become diagnosed and truly identified, which is pretty typical for girls on the spectrum because she had eye contact and everybody thought I was just being like the hypervigilant SLP mom that clearly she's fine. But just, you know, you know your gut. And so I just continued to pursue. And so at three and a half, she was identified as autistic. So it was almost a relief for me because I was sure something was going on. And to know that it was autism was like, okay. For me, it was a relief because I knew I'd worked with kids and I had seen kids grow and make progress. And it wasn't the end of life or a death sentence. It was just the beginning of something different than we had expected, but she was going to be fine. So three and a half, she started receiving services through the school district because that's where I knew to go. I took her to the school district to be assessed and she continued services and has continued now. She's in sixth grade. So I never necessarily, you know, I didn't go through necessarily like anger or denial and such things. But there still is a piece that I have to think about every time we have an IEP, every time, especially like this year, a triennial of like, who is she? Where is she? What's her future going to look like? You know, and things like that. So one thing I've always thought about with her is, as I get back to my first point, her strengths. Who is she? Right. Who is she? I'm always, my husband is better about this than than I am. I'm always looking at what is she into? What are her interests? Because, you know, our kiddos have these specific interests because I did a lot of work. I did four years in high school, 10 years in middle school. And I was able to see kiddos get jobs in those areas of preferred interest. And so like currently she's into, she's always been into numbers, but she's into sports, specifically sports statistics and who's injured and who's playing and how many points the team got and such things. And I told her a couple of months ago, I said, you know, you could get a job. People would pay you to be a statistician. And they would pay you to monitor the football statistics. And she was just like, you know, <laughs> but this is where I'm going. I'm thinking and if something else becomes an interest, she also enjoys cooking. She wants me to be a sous chef. I'm always looking at what are those things of, of interest for her and how can we use that in teaching her and, and, and watching her grow and also helping her to, to be fulfilled in her future. So that's kind of where we are now. Awesome. I love that. I And that's so awesome that you had the experience of high school and junior high. That is an area that I haven't had that I really would like to go there, but then I'm always hesitant because I've never been there before. And it's like, oh, do I want to learn something new? But we're constantly learning new oh, things. Always, always. I yeah. mean, just recently, my husband was talking, there was a something that kind of came across our radar And it was a program for autistic kids. And I'm really big on inclusion. And it was very much not an inclusive Mm -hmm. program. And and his comments on it were, I was like, you're listening, you're paying attention. And then he said, you know, it's really interesting because your thoughts and your ideas have changed so much over the last five years. And he commented on how we're always learning. And maybe I should talk a little less about speech therapy. at home. But, you know, it's a, that's, I just love that you've had that experience and you have had, you've seen where kids can go. Um, I think 
that that's so powerful, especially for those of us that work with younger kids. Um, and how, how fun, you know, that we get to figure out where these kids can go and give them those little, those little nuggets of, of, uh, inspiration to get them there. Something that you were saying, um, and talking about the grief cycle, it really also caused me to reflect a little bit about a family that I've been working with that I think the grief cycle we have to recognize for some families is kind of ongoing. Yes. There's a family that I've been working with that see very similar story to yours in terms of mom knew there was something going on, but she had great expressive language. Well, so, you know, compare She was talking a lot, um, really social eye contact, and she didn't get her diagnosis until three and a half either, uh, which also put off her getting services and so on and so forth. Um, but I have to remind myself that when mom comes and shares, man, it was a rough weekend. We went to a birthday party and she's just not communicating like the other kids. And I am looking at her little girl and thinking, she's amazing. She's made so much progress that I have to hold that and sit there and hold that space for mom and go, man, that must be tough. Mm -hmm. And how a lot of us don't like to sit in that discomfort. Yeah. And we want to point out, oh, but look at, look at what she's doing. Look at how amazing your child is. Look at how brilliant their brains are Mm -hmm. that we also have to sit with that with parents and, and let them be in the cycle that the part of the cycle that they're in. Yeah, please do that. That's so, so important that you share that because there it's such a delicate balance there. It's it's so much of a catch 22 all the time because I remember when my daughter was in that same space and birthday parties were a disaster. I remember the very first one took her to, she cried, I cried. I mean, it was, it was a hard, hard day. Um, And a lot of parents have nobody to share that with. Nobody who can, who will sit with them in that. Some parents lose friends or even family members. Nobody gets it. People are like, oh, it's nothing wrong with them. We have a family member tell us this. Oh, she's fine. It's nothing wrong with her. Nobody to sit in that space with you. And so if you can be that ear for that family, it, it, it could be powerful. There could be some really powerful relationship building. And guess what? They're going to listen to you more when you talk about the child's speech and in services and all other stuff, because you built that trust with them by sitting in that space. Thank you for bringing that up. That, And it goes to your point of over-communicate. Yeah. And it's something, again, I keep saying, I'm so grateful for my time in this clinic because it really reshaped who I am as a school-based SLP. And I'm on spring break today, but I still texted that mom back. You know, it took me two seconds to text her back and say, you know what? I'm sorry. You're right. I haven't updated it. <laughs> I now have 70 kids on my caseload. And she goes, well, I really miss it. We were practicing at home. And I said, oh, that's so awesome. And she said, can you do this? Yeah, I can absolutely do that for you. Um. how much of my time did it really take? And I know there's speech therapists who are guard the edges. Don't, you know, don't give up your time. Yes. Oh yeah. I was that way. I was like, oh no, you know, I did my pay, my dues. I did the homework and the IEPs on the weekend and cutting out materials on Sunday. Like I got to a point, I was like, okay, I I can't do it. And and, And nothing extra. Right. Especially as I started having, you know, had kids and stuff, but, um, there's a shift where I tell you being on the parent end where I see those little things matter. And there are ways now, because we've got so much with technology, there are ways to be able to, to, to put in things and, and make time for communication. And, and like you did, even, even with that simple text, that um, probably meant the world to that mom that you responded back and did that for her. So, I mean, thank you. And thank you. Thank you to the SLPs who are out there answering uh, a we as the parents, uh, Tito texts or although I do tell parents, don't text your providers. I don't, <laughs> don't get that personal with them. Send the person an email and give them 48 hours. I mean, you know, let's, let's, I try to tell them let's balance it out here, you know? And yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, I, I'm not sharing that to give myself a pat on the back, but just that point of it's doable. 
it's doable. And I'm building relationship where she knows I'm willing to work with her that the IEP process is going to be so much more comfortable. You know, she knows that I have an open door and I'm willing to work with her versus I will text you back at 825 Monday, April, whatever it is. We go back April three. So (laughs) for sure. Uh, Well, thank you for sharing your story. I think that that's really valuable for us to hear uh, your story and especially your, through your lens as a speech therapist, um, is, is really valuable for us to hear and how it looks, you know, you've sat on our side of the table and now you're sitting on your, the, the parent side of the table. Hopefully we're all sitting at round tables, but, (laughs) but, uh, you're, you know, what lens you're looking at through things. And I really loved your story of, or your, your experience of getting six reports as somebody who understands the language to begin with and not English, the language of educational services um, and how it was a lot for you to take in. I mean, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, how long was that meeting? Six reports. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, you know, with the triennial and uh, I mean, just share information, we've never thought about APE. And so somebody brought up, what about that? Now that she's in taking PE in middle school. And so I was like, yeah, you know, we should look at that. So there was APE and there was speech and there was a psychologist and there was OT. I mean, it was, and the nurse. So, I mean, it was a lot and uh, we didn't get through all of them. Um, Mm -hmm. But had I had all of the reports ahead of time, maybe we could have, I could have asked more strategic questions and um, maybe we could have maximized that time. So um, there will be a part two um, and uh, we'll, we'll make some, some gains and, and I'll prepare my questions and, um, be able to make sense of it. But I do want to say something about what you said as well, is that it, that, that grief cycle is, it's ongoing. It's not like it's, you know, one and done. And, um, even, uh, now I still, when I, when we have times like when we have to sit and look at our IEP, I don't know if that's necessarily grief, but it's definitely like, because I see her as so amazing and I see her and all of her strengths and all the things but sometimes I have to th- really think about it when I sit down and look at like an assessment report that says, you know, whatever visual process or whatever it is, is narrow channels. Like, oh, I forget. Sometimes I forget that there are some things that are hard or, you know. So, um, yeah, just giving giving families grace wherever they are and um, and seeing kids is amazing. Like so many of us do as SOPs. And finding ways to help facilitate their growth and um, and tie in interest to you know therapy tasks, things like that. Um, something I didn't talk about today was uh, person-centered planning, and this is what I learned working in high schools, which it's a requirement that uh, SAI teachers, uh, ed, special case managers, do person-centered planning to develop the transition plan. Because at age 16, a transition plan is required to be added to the IEP. And so they must sit with the child and ask about their interests and learning styles and help them start preparing and thinking about adulthood. Um, But I would encourage us all to think about that for our kiddos, taking some moments either during an assessment time or at the beginning of the year. What are talking to the kid, talking to that child in whatever capacity possible? If it's a child who is even non speaking, they have maybe a communication device. You can even, you know, you could look at the the images about, uh, you know, community helpers and do they show an interest, or if it's, you know, characters that they're into or Disney, whatever it is. But taking some time to do a little bit of person centered planning. Who is the child? What are they into? What are their interests? What are their you know goals for the future? What do they want to be? That was something that was really powerful that I tried to tie in in middle school. Okay, you want to be a YouTuber? Great. I get that. I'm not going to squash that dream. Sure, you could be a YouTuber. And guess what? Being able to participate in a collaborative conversation is going to be super important when you're trying to have a conversation with somebody to, you know, sell yourself or your idea, whatever, you know, like I, I tried to tie in whatever they wanted to do and be into the therapy. So 
But I was able to do that because I took some time every uh, beginning of the year to find out who who are my kiddos, who are they now, especially if you have them for year after year, things change, life changes. What are you into now? What are you, what are you doing? Are you skateboarding after school? Great. Like we can do some skateboarding articles about Tony Hawk. I mean, you know, it can be really powerful really and really meaningful. Are you looking to move up on the pay scale? You can through speechtherapypd.com in collaboration with University of the Pacific. Start earning graduate-level credits today. Courses are evidence-based and practical. Win-win. Check out speechtherapypd.com for more information on earning graduate-level credits. Awesome. I love that idea. And I love that idea of asking even our elementary kids, what do you want to be? And then bringing that into it. I do remember a student said he wanted to be a YouTuber. And I said, you want to be a tuba? And he goes, no, a YouTuber. And I said, that's where we have to work on our art. There you go. <laughs> Love it. There you go. See now, oh, he, you got his buy-in now because you know, yeah. it makes it's meaningful now. Yeah. Yeah. Shannon Warbeckis was on the podcast like this time last year, almost, I mm-hmm. think. And she works with middle, middle school students mm-hmm. and she asks, and it's hard, you know, when you're working in groups, how do you make it person-centered? But what she does is every student of hers picks a topic or a theme and they cycle through those themes uh, throughout the year. And so, you know, she'll have a student who's really about space and she goes, great, that's going to be your day. Mm -hmm. You are going to teach us about space. I'm going to bring in some things about space. And then she said, I learned some really great things. That's so good. Wow. Yeah. And so I... I was thinking, man, yeah, we absolutely can do that, especially with our elementary kids too. They can advocate for what it is that they want to do. I loved your your example of, okay, you're skateboarding. All right, we're gonna bring in some Tony Hawk articles and some, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do. Uh, I remember those like little skateboard things were so big when I was a kid. Yes, uh-huh. like, little, yeah, uh-huh. little, little, little yeah, fingerboard uh-huh. things. Yes, you know? uh-huh. Yeah. That would be so fun to find those again and bring those in and create some sort of game out of it. You know, you know how creative SLPs are totally. Oh, yeah. Uh Yeah, Yeah, I love that. So Mm -hmm. as you're talking to, I mean, this idea of person-centered planning is something that we can do. What are some other things that we can do to help just facilitate that relationship with families? Because you were sharing, you know, small things that you've seen that have really just made a huge difference. Is there anything else that comes to your mind of little things beyond just, you know, over-communicating that we can start doing maybe before IEPs or during the school year, uh, what, or even during the IEP? Yeah. Um, I know that for most of us, progress reports is a time that is a requirement, right? So being able to present families, if possible, with something more than a check the box, because the legally, that's all you have to give a parent is you check the box that the child is on a course to make progress toward this goal. That's it. That's all you have to do. But if you can give a little bit more than that, oh, that would be really meaningful and powerful. And and so most of us, we're, we're keeping data, we're doing things already, progress monitoring, but so just to give a little glimpse to parents of kind of where they are, also what it looks like. Um, also, uh, you know, I use a lot of rubrics. I made some rubrics and things when I was working in middle school. Um, sharing a copy of that, if you're using a rubric or a something, and adding that as a, into the IEP and giving the parent a copy so that they know what it looks like. And um, they could even, you know, attempt to do some of that kind of work at home with the kiddo. So um, if there's, uh, you know, I shared a lot with families about social thinking, socialthinking.com, anything that you can maybe share with them that they too could go and research or, or look into. Um, those kinds of things, I think, could be helpful in uh, in reaching out and making connections with families, um, sharing their reports ahead of time. That can be super helpful. And thinking about in the middle of the IEP, and this is something I used to do and probably used to annoy the people um, on my team, but um, I remember saying, stopping somewhere in the middle of the report, right, and saying, does that ring true for you? Does that sound like your kiddo? Is this similar to what you see at home? Really validating that that parent actually knows something about their child 
and has some value to add to to the team. Like that, that's, I think could be super helpful. I love that. You know, does this sound like your child? Does this, are these things that you're seeing at home too? What else are you seeing at home that maybe we can add to this? Mm -hmm. Um, I think is great. I know um, I've also heard instead of saying, uh, do you have any questions? What are your questions for me? Mm -hmm. And because most often, you know, do you have any questions? No, no, I, it's okay. You know, and especially I'm thinking of your architect parent that doesn't want to come across incompetent. Yes. yes they're yes. competent in every other room that they are in. Yeah. What questions do you have for me? Is this, is this making sense? Is there anything I can go over one more time? Mm-hmm. Oh man. Just opening that door to that would just be amazing. I can just hear, I could, I know parents that would be like, wow. They took the time to ask me that I took off work to come here and sit and hear these people tell me what my kid can't do. At least somebody gave me five minutes to share what they can do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was something I had listened to a podcast. Um, I still listen to this particular podcast. It's a group of women that have children with Down syndrome. Mm. And they talk about their experiences of, you know, lugging all of their children to this one child's therapy and sitting in therapies and not doing homework and so on and so forth. And then they started talking about IEPs and it was like, Ooh, ouch. Oh man. Okay. We've got to do better. And that really opened my eyes hearing their experiences about how hard it is. And you had touched on this too, that you see your child is so amazing that it's hard to hear sometimes, oh, they're not really excelling in that area. And, and I think sometimes we, we forget that, like, even though, you know, coming back to that idea of the grief cycle constantly happening and it's not one and done of sitting and oof, that standard score is low. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, you, cause you know, I'm looking at all of them. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, what's here? What's there? But you know what was interesting? Because and, and I'm still off off of a high a little bit of because we like literally just had our triennial um, recently. This year, it's like you said, like your husband said, wow, your thoughts have changed so much, right? Um, this year, this time, I started looking at what did she do well? Which standard scores are high? I want to capitalize on those areas. It was really interesting. This was like one of the first times that I thought, because we're doing all this study and training about strength-based IPs. Okay, okay, real rubber meets the road. Practice what you preach here. Look at where these are areas of strength. Okay, I know short-term memory is hard for her, but look, this area was amazing. How can we use those skills that are strengths for her and helping her to, to learn or compensate or do whatever, you know, in, in other areas? So it felt good. It felt good. That's awesome. And I think that's such a good example for some of us who are still learning what strengths-based IEP strengths-based reports look like. Uh, that idea of, okay, where do they do well? How can we capitalize on that. Do you have any other suggestions for some of us or any anything that you want to expand on when it comes to strengths-based IEPs? Yeah. And I know one thing that uh, people often ask is or think about is, well, if it's a strength-based IEP, does that mean like we only talk about the, the, the strengths or the things that are well? And, and from the research and things that I've read, we're not in denial that the child has a jagged profile. They have areas of strengths and challenges. So it's not as though we're not going to identify, you know, there are some areas of need, but what we will do is put a focus on the strength and look at how we can use those strengths to help build capacity in other areas. Um, So, and also thinking about being very, objective instead of subjective in our language as well. So um, matter of fact, without putting our own personal judgment on it, but just stating the facts. 
Um, that's something that can be important because that's something that is a pet peeve. I will tell you, uh, when I read in IEPs about a child was um, as if they were purposefully being mean or what a child can't or when I'm thinking, you, what, where was that child that day? That child might have been dysregulated because they were constipated and hadn't, haven't had a BM in five days. You don't know. And so for you to say that they were being mean puts a, a, a judgment on it instead of saying the facts. The child, was, the child, you know, tipped over the chair, the child refused to do work and, and matter of fact. Okay. And so now what what can we do to help facilitate, you know, some some growth or some increased attention to task or whatever it might be. So um, yeah, that's something else to consider as well. Trying as much as we can to just share information, being honest, focusing on the strengths, but not putting uh a judgment or 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 subjection on it because we don't know where kids are, why kids are. We can just comment on what we see and help them, you know, grow from there. I think that's a great, a great thing. We've seen that a lot lately in the autism spectrum world where there is a lot of those judgment calls um, that's happening instead of just simply, you know, stating the student did, you know, if we're communicating regularly with a parent, well, the student did this, they did that instead of the student is mean to his friends. Well, what does that mean? You know, uh, there was a, a student recently that we were working with that he kept getting sent home. And I, and I have never seen this child be aggressive and it would happen at the very beginning of the day before, you know, as he's getting off of the bus and he would just, you know, lash out, hit his students, uh, hit the students near him. And I would show up to the classroom to get the students for speech. And he was always gone by the time. And I would see them, you know, earlier in the morning, not first thing. Um, And they'd say, oh, he went home today. He's having a rough day. And then it was, okay, well, let's figure this out. This Because when he's here, he's awesome. Mm -hmm. And I don't see, I don't see that aggression. Well, then it was, there was a different bus driver. His bus driver had changed. Um, And then I think grandpa had recently moved in and grandpa was helping him get ready in the morning and mom was no longer helping him get ready in the morning. And so there were all these changes that were happening and nobody was taking the time to explain it to him or to, you know, listen to his frustration of, you know, maybe grandpa wasn't making the right breakfast in the morning. Who knows what it is, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then once we kind of came up with, a, uh, I met him at the bus and I know mom always gives him books. Books are a, a preference of his. So um, when it was time for him to wait to, you know, go on to the cafeteria and get breakfast, you know, go ahead. Um, I don't want to use his name. Go ahead, child, you know, pull out your book. And he didn't do it. And so I just pulled it out for him, gave it to him. And then it, that was his new routine. He would come in, he'd sit down at the table, he'd pull out his book and he was happy as can be. Um, but I mean, and also, you know, talking through, Hey, why don't we introduce you to the new bus driver? Mm -hmm. Why don't you talk to the new bus driver, tell them something about you, learn something about them, you know, just to make it more comfortable. And, and I don't know exactly what, um, what they did with grandpa too, but I, I had suggested that. How about we, you know, he gets to know the bus driver. Maybe, maybe the bus driver turns down the street differently or whatever. You <laughs> never day. know. There could be one you little thing that we don't even pay attention to, but our kiddos are so in tune with their senses and their environment. And that, that one little thing could, could, could be, you know, a, a trigger. So yeah. That. Yeah. But it was, you know, he's so mean, he's lashing out. And I even said it, he's lashing out at his friends. Like, mm-hmm. He, instead of just like, you know, he would hit his friends next to him out of nowhere. And it was so unlike him from what I'd seen all year. Yeah. And took the time to investigate. Yeah. We're having to be little private investigators, you know, little detective work, um, because there was a reason for that. Right. 
instead of just saying, oh, well, maybe he's just, you know, demonstrating behaviors. He's just, you know, be, being a bad boy or whatever. It's the autism. No, this was different for a reason. Let's look into it and see what what could be going on. And you were able to find that because you took the time uh, to, to do a little investigation work. So that's the kind of thing that could make a huge difference. Because now he won't necessarily be labeled the bad kid or the kid that hit or all the things. Now you have given him a space where he feels comfortable and, he, you know, he can move on. So, yeah, those kinds of things can make a big difference in a kid's life and experience at school. Yeah. And I think, you know, hearing the perspective of parents, of us understanding, I mean, things changed too. When I became a parent, and my mom started making comments about my daughter. About, oh, she's a wild one. She's going to give you a run for her money. Oh, she's sassy, which she is. But I was so worried about, oh my gosh, I don't want her to be a bad kid. Right. Oh yeah. And she's not a bad kid. She's two years old. All two-year-olds, you know, are learning, are coming into their own. And that's kind of what it looks like. Yeah. Um, so I think that that really helped kind of put thing, put things in perspective for me about how we shape things and frame things for parents because this is their little heart out in the world. It is. It totally is. Yeah. Parents, I, you know, I, I teach in the class that I teach for parents. I get that you are 200% invested in your child and I get it. Um, but I always tell them teams, but the majority of the work that I've done are doing the best they can with what they have and we need to, you know, give them grace and understand that these are humans, you know, um, but and there is a space for us all to work collaboratively for the benefit of the child. Let's just keep it all focused on the child and we'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Keep the focus, you know, keep the main thing, the main thing. Yes, yes, yes. And remembering that very rarely have I sat around a table where not everyone at the table is for the child. Right. Um, right. You know, 9.99% out of 10 times, it's, we all want the same thing. So how do we communicate that with each other? Uh, Crystal, thank you so, so, so much for having this conversation with us and sharing sharing things through your lens, not only as a, as a person who is a parent representative, but also a parent of an autistic child, um, and sharing your experience is so valuable for us. Do you mind recapping your three things for us and your two resources? And we talked a lot about different strategies. <laughs> we got more than our money's worth today. So if you just want to recap your three things that we need to know in our two strategy or our two resources. Okay. So three, th three things uh, that we need to know, uh, starting from a focus of strength and uh, the child's strengths, letting that guide us in the work that we do. Um, also uh, tapping into the child's ecosystem, what is their family, those who are supporting and a part of the child's life and the, the value and knowledge that those people have, as well as considering our, our, our kiddos that we're working with. Um, as a whole child and look and thinking about beyond just in, from the speech room and the speech perspective, who are they and uh, what are their needs and, and, and strengths and things that are going on um, in a variety of contexts outside of, of the speech room in the school. Uh, one of the resources was our strength-based uh, approaches to uh, educating all learners uh, with disabilities. That's a book that we're, we're working through personally. Uh, now, what was the second one? Because there were so many um, things that we talked about. Person-centered planning we talked about. Um, the procedural safeguards. Oh, and yes, reviewing your districts because everyone's different procedural safeguards. Um, often, if you do a little bit of research, there's a there's a uh, a cheat sheet out there uh, that you can find. And reviewing that, reviewing that for your own benefit and, and being able to have a space where you can review that with families uh, could be super helpful and meaningful. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone, as we are wrapping up, if you have any questions, go ahead and pop those in now. And just to recap for our listeners that will be listening at a later time, that is the Strengths-Based IEPs book by Michael Wenmeyer. And that I'm really excited to dive into that one. I didn't realize that that existed. So thank you for sharing that. I think that that is 
that's probably a book that I'm going to buy and then share it with everyone. Uh, especially as we move towards a lot of us are, are trying to be better at being neurodiversity affirming and strengths-based IEPs really seems to be along those same lines. I will put a, a quick plug out there for um, Temple Grandin, right? So many of us know her work. She has a new book that's coming out. I, I've already pre-ordered it on Amazon. Um, and it's about um, autistic kiddos in schools and what we can do to better support them. So um, look for that. I believe it's coming out uh, next month in April. Awesome. I didn't know that. Thank you for sharing that resource for us as well. You have given us definitely much more bang for our buck. Three resources, lots of actionable strategies like over communicating, creating space for families to grieve and also creating creating spaces for parents to ask questions in IEPs and sending information home earlier. Um, so that they can process that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Crystal. Everyone, we really appreciate you joining us here this evening. And just as a reminder, at the conclusion of today's course, you can log into your course portal and complete all modules, especially the one entitled quiz to get your CEUs for today. All right, Crystal, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your experiences with your own child. We have one Q&A that just popped in. Oh, thank you for your insight. All right. Thank you so much. We hope that you all have a great rest of your evening or wherever you are listening to this. And we'll catch you back here soon. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Use the unique coupon code for listeners of this podcast, LIFE20, for $20 off an audio course subscription. Audio course subscriptions give access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. Again, use the code LIFE20 to access more than 200 hours of audio courses for $59 a year. Visit speechtherapypd.com slash life for more information and start earning CEs today. Thanks for joining us at This Speech Life. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Music